Well, today is a little bit of a different sermon again. We are doing an exegetical study of the, the, the book of Hebrews. And, and I wanted to start kind of with a bit of a, a, bit of a, a picture into my own life. I grew up in a family, we we're very outdoors. We love the outdoors. Our family, we grew up in Manitoba. So kind of ironic that we love the outdoors because if you've ever been to Manitoba, uh, there's about like 30 days where it's really beautiful with fall and the leaves and everything else. And then the rest of the time, it's just either hot or when the sun goes down, it's not hot anymore, but the mosquitoes are out. And man, to love the outdoors in Manitoba, it's a bit of a task. But we would go every year to the Rocky Mountains. And, and my dad loved this just one thing. And he loved canoeing. He loved being out on the water. And so he, we had a canoe and and so we would go out canoeing, and my, my uncle, out of their farm in Alberta, they had the Rosebud River weaving through their property, and so we'd pull the canoe out, and we'd put it in the river, and we'd go. And what's interesting about canoeing, though, is you always had to work at it. Who's ever been canoeing on a river? It's a lot of work, even if you're going with the current. The river's just going to take you where it's going to take you unless you do something about it, right? Unless you're steering, unless you're paddling, particularly when you want to get back upriver, you have to work at it. Otherwise, you begin to drift. You begin to drift, and, and that drift is going to take you wherever that river wants to take you. You have no decision or choice on where that's going to go. And unless you're actively engaged in the process of canoeing, you're going to go wherever that thing wants to go. Some of you, I know stories, I, I see some of you here, you've told me stories about uh, doing the canoe route. And in the afternoon on Powell Lake, that wind blows pretty hard, and, and you got to work to get back down the lake. you got to work hard. But I want to talk to you today about our tendency to drift. In fact, my sermon title is A Tendency to Drift. A Tendency to Drift. And we're entering our third installment of the series, Hebrews, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Marcus, he preached a sermon entitled, Jesus Over Everything. And if you missed it, I highly recommend you go back this week, go to myevangel.church and listen to it there online, or subscribe to our podcast and you can listen to it there. But his main thing statement was this, Jesus over everything brings alignment to our lives. Jesus over everything brings alignment to our lives. And today, really, I'm just going to be simply bringing an exclamation point to that big idea. I'm going to be bringing an exclamation point. And if you're taking notes, please write this down. Jesus is constant. Jesus is constant. And change is our journey. Jesus is constant. And change is our journey. You, you, you could say it this way. The truth is set in stone. And we are clay molded into the image of truth, who is Jesus. Revealed to us by Jesus. And today, before we dive in, we need to understand that, that the beginning of chapter 2 is really finishing the thought of chapter 1. When this Bible came to us, it, was not, it didn't have chapter and verses. That came later just for reference sake. And unfortunately, what happens sometimes when we go by those references, we lose the nuance of what's going on. And so uh, Donald Guthrie, he says, 
No break is intended between the discussion of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 1 declares the truth that Jesus is over everything, that Jesus is supreme. And now the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience what that means for them. This is the first exhortation of five that we receive from the author of Hebrews. And before I go on, I want to take a moment to define what I mean by exhortation. Because that's a word we don't use. It's a very, it comes from uh, theological language. It comes from uh, our scriptures, our translation of scriptures. It's an old word. And we don't use it in everyday life. So I want to make sure that we're all kind of operating with the same working definition of what exhortation is. The definition is this. An address or communication emphatically in urging someone to do something. An address or communication emphatically urging someone to do something. But, but this is only half the story when it comes to a biblical understanding of exhortation. There, there's the what, there's the how, the when, the why of exhortation. And then there's the spirit behind it. How many know that it's not always just about what you do, it's about the spirit behind, the motivation, the heart behind what you're doing. And biblical exhortation has two main components. The first is exhortation as we define it, but the second speaks to consolation. And the combination of these two ideas brings us this picture of an exhortation that carries with it great empathy. It's a picture of one advocating for another. One advocating for another. There's a difference between advocating for the behavior and advocating for the individual. Who's ever ever had somebody advocate for the truth in your life? And it came across harsh and uncaring. They felt they needed to advocate for the truth. There's a difference between advocating for the truth and advocating for a person. The truth has a way of being true no matter what. Truth doesn't need an advocate. People do. People do. Jesus is constant and changes our journey. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. So so when we hear these exhortations from the writer of Hebrews, we need to hear them with a tone of care and love and a sense of them standing in as an advocate on our behalf. Because I know some of you are like me. When somebody tells you what to do or urges you to do something a particular way, if you feel like they're not for you, what are you going to do? If you're like me, you're going to be like, no way, no thanks. You're going to reject truth simply because of the way that it was packaged and given to you. And so as we hear this writer, as we hear the writer of Hebrews, whoever they were, they were advocating for you. They were advocating for their audience. This is not a hammer over the head. This is a gift of truth given with empathy and with love for you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 2. And we're going to be reading from 1 to 4. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Notice the opening revelation to the reader in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's two assumptions that we can make based on this sentence. We can assume that because this is written as an exhortation, that the audience receiving this letter or this sermon has not been paying close attention to their spiritual journey. We can make that assumption. There's an apathy at play in this church or this community of faith. The second assumption is this. If you don't pay close attention to your faith, you will drift. If you don't pay close attention to your faith, you will. Inevitably, you will drift. Let me read the words of William Barclay as he comments on this passage. He says this. It'll be up on the screen as well. In the first verse, there may be an even more vivid picture than there is in the translation which we have used. The two key words are prosgene and perine. They have taken prosgene to mean pay attention to, which is one of its most common meanings. Perine is a word of many meanings. It is used of something flowing or slipping past. But both these words also have a nautical sense. Prosheen can mean to anchor, to, to moor a ship. And perine can be used of a ship that has been carelessly allowed to slip past a harbor or a haven because the captain has forgotten to allow for the wind or the current or the tide. So this first verse could very vividly translate it. Therefore, we must the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we have been taught in case the ship of life should drift past the harbor and be wrecked. It is a vivid picture of a ship drifting to destruction because the pilot is asleep. William Barclay, I think he sums it up right when he says the outcome is to drift to destruction. Because friends, the river of this life, the river of this broken world, that's its destination. To drift in this world is to drift towards destruction. The default of life is to drift towards destruction. In other words... Our defaults are broken, so we cannot rely on them. This this sums up what what is to be the first exhortation we receive from the writer of Hebrews. In what Pastor Marcus last week, he he observed is really a good five-point, a very well-written five-point sermon. Jesus over everything, which calls us to be mindful of our journey of faith, paying close attention and not drifting past the safe harbors of his truth, and his ways. 
In October of 2018, uh, Dan Green and I, we met early, early, early in the morning. We went and got coffee. We loaded up the boat. We hooked it up to his truck, and we went down to the harbor. And we were going to go fishing. So we got down to the harbor, and as we arrived, we looked out over the ocean, and we couldn't see the ocean because it was just fog banks. We couldn't see a thing. And so, as you can imagine, as responsible adult men, we decided to go out fishing. And so we went out on the water, and, and we dropped some prawn traps, and, and fortunately, we had a GPS. And so we marked where we dropped those traps, and we kind of went a few hundred meters apart and dropped them, and, and then we started trolling. And here's the deal. I don't know if you've ever been on the ocean when there's fog and you can't see a thing. You cannot depend on your feelings, your opinions, or your intuition. Because if you depend on your thoughts, your opinions, your feelings, or your intuition, you're going to get yourself in big, big trouble. And so what did we have to do? Well, we had two devices. We had a GPS and we had a fish finder. And so that fish finder was able to tell us at what depth we were. We were able to see our depth. And our GPS was able to tell us where we were. And so we had to navigate by elements that showed us the truth of where we were. We couldn't just depend on our feelings and our intuition because we had no idea where we were. Friends, life is the same way. You cannot navigate this life based on your feelings, your opinions, or your defaults. The journey of faith demands careful attention to the truth of God's word and the still small voice of his spirit in order to make it home, in order to, to make it into the harbor safely. This is the reality of the Christian faith. And I know sometimes we just let routine and we let life get away from us. Friends, if you're stuck in routine that doesn't include the truth of God's word, times in prayer, friend, you're drifting. You're drifting. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You're drifting. And that drift is going to take you to destruction. And that's the exhortation of the writer of Hebrews. It's a hard truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. We can't depend on our feelings, our opinions, or our intuitions, especially in a moment in a season like this. Because what are our defaults? Our defaults are fear. Jesus is constant. He's truth. He's unchanging. And change is our journey. And change takes knowing the truth in the day-to-day, and -day, the week-to-week, and -week, the month-to-month. And that's what apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. That's what growing in faith looks like. The writer goes on in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I, I, I could probably preach about three sermons on this to do these two verses justice. We could probably extend our series exponentially to really dig into this. But for the sake of time, I want to give you a bit of an overview of what the writer is saying. And then I want to deep dive 
into two particular ideas that surface when you do a word study of the original Greek language. In terms of overview, keep in mind the theme of chapter 1 and these passages in chapter 2. They're speaking to the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus over everything. Jesus is king. He's the one seated at the right hand of the Father. I love that picture, uh, Marcus, last week. Uh, that, that, that idea that the priests would stand in service as they sacrificed, and they would stand perpetually in service. And yet Jesus, when he finished the work, what did he do? He went and he sat at the right hand of the Father. A picture and an image of completion. Because he is sufficient. What a powerful picture. But the big idea is that Jesus rules in supremacy. So don't neglect this great salvation we've received. Jesus is constant and change is our journey. But as we, as we dig, we come across these two key ways in which this kind of neglect can happen. Now remember, the author has already painted the picture of drifting. For the believer, none of these things happen in a moment or, or in one instant. Sometimes we can think, we look at somebody's life and it just goes off the rails and we think, oh, that was a moment. No, that was a season of drifting. That was a season of drifting before their life went off the waterfall. It's never just a moment. It's seasons where we neglect this great salvation we've been given that bring us over the falls. There's this progression of drifting that inevitably carries us to destruction. And the author is emphatically exhorting us to be conscious about our faith. But he talks about two ways that we can neglect our faith. And the English words here in this verse are transgression or disobedience. He says transgression or disobedience. And notice he doesn't say transgression and disobedience. Notice that, that one word. He doesn't say transgression and disobedience because in our English language, those two things are synonymous. We think of those as the same thing, but they're not. He says trans dis transgression or disobedience. The first word for transgression is, is parabasis, which we translate as transgression. And this word speaks of stepping across the line. This is the kind of sin and neglect of our salvation that is purposeful. We know exactly what we're doing, and we do it anyway. Transgression. We know exactly what we're doing, and we do it anyway. But the second word isn't as obvious, and I would argue probably defines the realities that are more powerfully destructive to your faith than the first. There's a reason it doesn't say transgression and disobedience. The second word is, excuse my Greek, <laughs> parakoye. And we translate this word as disobedience, but it carries a more nuanced meaning than that. When we hear disobedience, we think in terms of willful disobedience automatically. We think of willful, and that would be very much the same as transgression, but, but there's more nuance going on here. William Barclay, I'm going to paraphrase him, he says it this way. It can mean three things, and here's the nuance of this word. It can mean, one, 
imperfect hearing, like someone who is deaf, having suffered hearing loss. Imperfect hearing. They just can't hear. Number two, careless hearing. Those that have careless hearing. This is someone who doesn't hear because they aren't paying attention or they're distracted. And all the ladies in the room said, I hear, I hear you on that. This is the kind of hearing that, that is distracted and, and is not paying attention. And it's kind of aloof in this life. And then the third is an unwillingness to hear. And friends, they are all disobedience. Imperfect hearing. You, you literally can't hear. Careless hearing. Distracted, aloof, or an unwillingness to hear. They all equal disobedience. But here's, here's what's interesting I believe that there's a grace and a mercy extended by our God to those who cannot hear for whatever reason. And you can fill in the blank of who those individuals might be in society. But I believe there's a grace and there's a mercy in those circumstances where they just cannot hear. But it's still disobedience. But there's a mercy and a grace extended. You hear hear what I'm saying? But the next two are entirely in the realm of our control and with due diligence can be overcome. But, but, but friends, hear me in this. It takes due diligence. It takes diligence. Whether through neglect or willful decision, the drifting nature of our human condition remains intact even as we call ourselves sons and daughters of God. We still live in this broken world. We still drift in faith unless we make decisions to be those that hear the word of God and become doers of the word of God. This is the warning found in verse 3. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, whether through transgression, willful, willful disobedience, or through careless hearing and neglect of our faith. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is a heavy moment. This is a heavy saying to those that believe in Jesus. We can't take this lightly. Later in the letter, this thought is revisited in Hebrews 12, 25. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's talking about the person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the ongoing journey with Jesus. Now remember, this is a warning coming with the tone and heart of one who is positioning themselves as an advocate for you, for the audience. And too often we hear these moments with the tone of someone who is threatening us, and we react to it. Don't react to it. Hear it. Meditate on it. Evaluate your life in light of truth. Don't react to it. Respond to it. 
Remember when I said truth has a way of being true no matter what. That premise remains true even in our ignorance or our neglect. Truth remains truth even in our ignorance or our neglect of it. It still remains true. So how's your faith journey? How's your journey of faith? Now, not how do you feel about it, but if you step back objectively and you look at the rhythms of your life and you look at the rhythms of your day-to-day and you look at your relationship with Jesus and you look at the trajectory of your life, are you changing? Does your life look like one position as an apprentice to Jesus? This is what the writer of Hebrews is calling his audience to. This is a warning. But it's a warning in the same way that a parent warns their child that the fire is hot. Right? It's the warning of an advocate. Can I just get sidetracked for a moment? This morning, I want to give you an example kind of from my own life. Um, Kind of taking this season that we find ourselves right right now with the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, um, Here's the question, do you find yourself mooring the anchor of your life in the harbor of his peace, or have you drifted past the harbor into fear and panic? Because we must be wise and diligent, but we don't react as the world reacts. Instead, we respond to a crisis as children secure in their salvation. In the midst of a crisis that that we begin to see what's on the inside. When we face crisis in our lives, when we face hard times, when we face circumstances beyond our control that hurt, we begin to see what squeezes out of us, out of the abundance of your your heart, the mouth speaks. Friends, how are you speaking at home with your families in this season? What's coming out of your spirit and your heart right now? Perhaps that's a great litmus test of where you are at in terms of your diligence in the things of faith and apprenticeship to Jesus as the person of truth. I want to give you an example of a lack of diligence in my own life. I'm a bit of a news junkie, and and not only just a news junkie, but I, I, I I posted something this week, some of you may have saw it on Facebook, um, just around... My biggest pet peeve is, is when people share stuff or say stuff that is just completely untrue and from sources that are absolutely not great sources. So when I say I'm a news junkie, I'm a news junkie. I hear something and then I have to go in and I have to begin to discover what are the sources, where is this coming from, are they reliable? It, that takes time, friends. That takes a lot of time. And here's what happens. When I get caught up in moments like this, moments of crisis like the one we're in, and I want to understand it, but I want to understand it from reliable sources. And so I put in the hard work. But here's what happens. I get so invested in that story that that story very quickly, whether I know it or not, can begin to shape my reaction And I have to be careful that I don't get so obsessed with the story that I lose my diligence in the faith 
Because what goes in comes out. What goes in comes out. And lately, I've had to just shut off my phone and stay away from my Google News app and begin to meditate and ponder on the things and the ways of Jesus in crisis. And let that define my response. Because, friends, we become so quickly those that drift past the harbor, and we miss it. We miss it. This, this moment, though transportation and connectivity globally is unprecedented, this moment is not unprecedented in human history. It's just not. I don't know why we as a generation think we're somehow special. We're still human beings living in a broken world, and we're going to face moments like this. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus changed some stuff. And we can't neglect that. We can't neglect that. Jesus, who rules supreme over all things, because Jesus is constant. That's where we're going to find truth. That's where we're going to find what's real in this world and the world to come. Change is our journey. The writer continues and drives this point home in the latter part of verse 3 and into 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it is attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here we get a bit of a summary of why we should listen. In other words, the writer understands that there's some proof that you need to establish if you're going to ask people to change their lives. If you're going to ask someone to engage something different, you have to prove that it's true. You have to give some proofs. And there's three ways that, that they summarize it here. And again, I want to read from William Barclay because he says it better than I could. And I want to give him props. But he says this. The writer to the Hebrews ends this paragraph by stating three ways in which the Christian revelation is unique. Number one, it is unique in its origin. It came directly from Jesus himself. It does not consist of guessing and feeling our way towards God. It is the very voice of God himself which comes to us in Jesus Christ. It's unique in its origin, in its source. Talk about the best source you can find. Number two, it is unique in its transmission. It is unique in its transmission. It came to the people to whom Hebrews was written from those who had themselves heard it directly from the lips of Jesus. The person who can pass on the Christian truth to others, don't miss this, friends, the person who can pass on the Christian truth to others is the one who knows Christ other than at second hand. We can never teach what we do not know and we can teach others of Christ only when 
we know him ourselves. The power of your witness in this world is contingent on you knowing Jesus. Number three, it is unique in its effectiveness. It produced signs and wonders and deeds of power of many kinds. Someone once congratulated the 19th century preacher Thomas uh, Chalmers as one of his great speeches. After one of his great speeches, yes, he said, but what did it do? But what did it do? As a theologian, James Denny used to say, the ultimate objective of Christianity is to make bad people good. And the proof of real Christianity is the fact that it can change the lives of individuals. The moral miracles of Christianity are still plain for all to see. In other words, friends, there was a day when you came to Jesus and you stopped. You died in that moment and you became a new creation in Christ. And your life, the change of your life, the trajectory of your life towards Christ and truth is a witness that it is true. Jesus is constant and change is our journey. Not only is it our journey, the change of our lives submitted to Jesus as supreme is the testimony and the very proof that Jesus changes everything. That's how important this responsibility you carry because it's not just about you. You drifting in your faith is not just about you. Though the writer of Hebrews is advocating for you, he's also advocating for this world. That you would be those that grow in faith and reveal Jesus with the change that happens in your life. Because if you don't change, as you call yourself an apprentice of Jesus, if you don't change, this world sees it and goes, there's no power in this Jesus. Jesus doesn't change everything. So the writer of Hebrews is advocating for you, but he's advocating for your community. He's advocating for your neighbors in this. He's advocating for your families in this. That you would not neglect your salvation. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. So I want to create space today in the midst of this climate, in the midst of this world, in the midst of all that's going on, I just want to ask you a simple question. When's the last time your faith led you to change something? Whether it's an attitude, a behavior, a priority. When's the last time Jesus called you to change something? Or maybe better yet, because he's always calling us to change something, because none of us have arrived. When's the last time you said yes to that change? When's the last time you, 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 you took that 
courageous, bold, hard step. Because I, I, I believe that there's some of you here today, the Spirit is convicting you about some things in your life. In fact, there may be some of you here today, and I just, I just want to submit this to you. Perhaps the Spirit is asking you to change something that's going to come at a great cost to you. It might even break your heart. Maybe it's something you've been holding close and you've been holding dear, and He's asking you to release it. When's the last time you said yes to the change Jesus has called you to? Because as we say yes, we begin to pull on the oars and we begin to move safely into harbor. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you search me? Lord, in this moment, would you know me? I acknowledge that you are the truth. You are the way. Lord, you are the life. Would you align my heart? That I would stop demanding that you change to fit my opinions or my perceptions of how it should be. But I acknowledge that you're constant that you are the very standard of what is true. Would you give me grace to change as I apprentice my life after Jesus? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.